honey, I love a luxurious moment, but I also love luxury that like doesn't cost quite so much. Then I discovered Quince and it was a total game changer. They have so many different items to choose from. They have washable silk tops and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Thanks, Quince. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury, honey. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash curious. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You and I will always go on. Oh, oh my God, we're recording. I'm so sorry, everyone. Welcome to Getting Curious. Let's get into it. December 19th, 1997, a day that would change culture forever. A young Leonardo DiCaprio transforms into Jack Dawson. His hair, windswept. His clothing, elevated slop. The satchel he carries to steerage, I wish he were carrying me instead. Actually, I'm more like into that other one, like the villain. He's more my type, like more hairy chest. But anyway, I don't want to get distracted. Dr. Megan Walker is the URA Pratt postdoctoral fellow at Memorial University of Newfoundland. She studies the clothing of working men who went to sea under British jurisdiction in the 1700s and 1800s. Megan, how are you? Also, I hear word on the street is that you are literally in Newfoundland. It's giving gusty. It's giving actually... I'm not going to tell the people what it is. Will you tell us where's your location? What is your weather? And how are you thriving, Queen? (laughs) Hi, we're in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, which is basically sitting precipitously on the edge of Canada in the North Atlantic. Megan, (laughs) I don't know if you meant to stumble into one of my favorite fucking distracting words of all time, (laughs) but precipitously is one of my favorite words. It gives me, it tantalizes me all the way down to my tippy toes. I'm obsessed. Now, 
If you've ever been to one of my stand-up comedy shows, you will know that when I go skirt hard right uh, this soon, it's going to be a big day. We're going to, it's going to be fun. <laughs> but hard right. I am a little bit shook that Titanic was released 25 years ago. When I performed in my sixth grade talent show, I did a <laughs> stirring rendition of this hybrid off ice figure skating and uh, jazz ballet uh, from someone who'd never taken dance class. Uh, I, I tried out, I made the talent show, honey. But so many people tried out with My Heart Will Go On. They ended up assembling them into a chorus. And if you saw the episode of Queer Eye uh, with Kathy Dooley, I will never forget. She was like conducting this like hodgepodge. Like, and they dressed up in like whatever Quincy Community Theater's version of maritime fashion was. I, and because I know that that fucking lady, Kathy Dooley, who I love so much, did secure footage of that tape and then went on to embarrass me with it. The first time I ever did like a nighttime talk show alone, it was on freaking Jimmy Kimmel. And then he was like, he played the tape. It was the first time I'd ever seen the tape of me <laughs> off ice figure skating oh, no. in jazz shoes and in an in a outfit that I made myself. It, it like, it was a glitter pin question mark that said right on the front of the shirt and then wrong on the back of the shirt. Like I was giving you existential crisis in sixth grade. Like it was so deep. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that like I have been loving Titanic forever and it's very iconic and it's just so iconic. Also tell us everything about where you are because I asked you that question and then fucking talked for 30 minutes. Kill me, God, Megan. Tell us where you are and then it's the question. Tell us. Well, it's related to the Titanic. So the Titanic sank on April 14th. 1912, uh, not very far from where I'm sitting currently, uh, just off the coast of Newfoundland. So if we draw south a little bit to the Cape Race Lighthouse at the tip of the Avalon Peninsula, which is about an hour and a half drive away, that would be the closest on land you could get to where the wreck sits today. And the Cape Race Lighthouse would have had a telegraph uh, office and would have received the distress signal from the Titanic. What word are you saying? What is that? The Cape so the plot in Titanic where they're trying to be the fastest across the Atlantic is where the race part of Cape Race comes from because it's the first land you hit in North America when you are coming from Britain to uh, North America. So they're literally racing. In the past, it would be to hit the fisheries first. So therefore, you would catch the most fish and then come home to Britain and have the highest prices for your fish catch when you returned. But as the liner races grew, you wanted to have the fastest ships so you could advertise the speediest voyage across the Atlantic. So like the Cunard ships, um, Lusitania and Mauritania were really famous for being very fast, the greyhounds of the sea. And Titanic was entering into that market, trying to say that it could very rapidly cross the Atlantic and get people from Southampton to New York in the fastest time possible. Although the Titanic wasn't really designed for speed the same way that the Cunard ships were. So it's a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a strange argument. <laughs> My obsession grows for you wildly by the minute. You're amazing. <laughs> I cannot get enough. Okay. So, okay. So, not to get so deep into Titanic, but I can't help it. But like you, because so, like you were like a baby when it was released, right? Like you were just like a young little. Oh, no, no, were, no. I'm a 90s baby. But like you were in grade school. You weren't like a scientist yet. Yeah, yeah. I was already obsessed, though. I was like a 90s kid. You know how everyone's either like Egypt or Titanic? Well, I was Titanic. Yeah. Grew up on uh, it on Halloween. I went as the like newspaper boy with the newspaper that says Titanic, great loss of life. Yeah, I'm that kid. 
Oh my God, I love that. So from when you first saw it to now, like having become like a literal like doctor of like history, darling. And like, you're like literally like, does it hold up for you from when you were like little to now? Like, are you like, yeah, they really did like, they did the damn thing. Yeah. James Cameron's Titanic is very good in the pantheon of Titanic films. Uh, It can be a lot worse. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So it literally has like the Dr. Walker seal of approval. I'm obsessed. Okay. So now I got that out of my system. Let's sail into the year 1800. What was the British Empire up to in the moment? It's the 1800s. Like, yes, we're giving like nostalgia, but it's also giving fucked up colonialism, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, this is basically in the middle of what is the French Revolutionary Wars, uh, which will soon be transitioning into the Napoleonic Wars between initially revolutionary France, who had their French Revolution in 17. 98. And then it transitioned into the Napoleonic Wars when Napoleon became emperor and ended in 1815 with the Battle of Waterloo. God damn, (laughs) Megan. That's okay. Not to take a second hard right, but yeah. 1776, like the US like does the Revolutionary War, Mm -hmm. honey. Then it's like over in like 81. Mm -hmm. Then there was that whole thing about like France being like, you, we have our treaty queens, like, but then we were like, mm, actually, that was like with your monarchy and you overthrew them. Yeah. So like, technically, like, we don't really like, thank you so much for like mm-hmm. what was actually in reality, just like what, like 30 years ago. And bye. Sorry. And then that's like why everyone was like, Washington's biggest achievement was like not getting us into another war. But I didn't realize that France and England would go on to get into another war for yeah. like, or that, that that went on for 25 years. And maybe is that why we ended up being kind of like air quote, like safe ish. Cause oh, no. like they were oh, so, no. Oh. <laughs> no, no, the Americans are right in the middle of this. Um, they're trying to be a neutral shipping party, but the British and the French are stopping their ships and trying to tell them where they can't and can sell their goods. And also the British very infamously, um, although this has largely been forgotten, are pressing American seafarers into British service or dubious American seafarers, essentially. So like imagine Uh, like in the past, there's no such thing as immigration. There's no such thing as like citizenship. There's no passports. So you board the British board an American ship. They talk to the crew and they decide that some of the American crew are British who could be pressed into British service. So they essentially Holy shit. Uh, move them into British service, but they could be just Americans or they could be um, British pretending to be Americans. And this goes on until the war of 1812, where the Americans do go to war against the British. And that's when the British burnt the white house down. <laughs> that's what, Oh yeah. That's yeah, when Dolly yeah, Madison had to yeah, run out with yeah, like, the picture you know, that I saw yeah, in drunk history. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I can't believe I was never more curious about that. And then also we did this episode like years ago about like lady pirates and just like about pirate, Mm -hmm. like pirate stuff. So this is all like, that's all going on at kind of the same time, isn't it? Yeah. Well, how legitimate some of these merchants are is questionable. Some of them are um, privateering and things like that. But the Americans will assert that they're legal merchants who deserve to be left alone because they're neutral shippers and should be allowed to land in uh, France and land in England and not be harassed. But the British are, of course, saying that they're smuggling goods into France or they're acting as privateers and attacking British ships and things like that. Yeah. Is privateers British for 
pirate? It's like a slightly more legal. Like it's like mm. it's like you're a pirate if you don't have the paperwork. <laughs> but if you're a privateer, if you do have paperwork. So then that whole tea about like like when the Revolutionary War was like happening and then the colonies were trying to get Canada to join in, but then they were like, no, like we're kind of good. Like leave us mm-hmm. alone or whatever. Like do you in America, or at least for me, because I'm basic, like sometimes <laughs> like I think that like we just get like really into like propaganda of wars in like grade school. So you're just kind of like, fuck the British. Like, and we won. Like you really do get that at least growing up in the cornfields of the Midwest. Yeah. So like <laughs> you as a Canadian mm-hmm. historian, honey, like were we kind of cool or like hideous or like was 1812 kind of fierce because like we were like down Britain like and then like we totally won or was it like more nuanced than that actually it's really funny because where I am now Newfoundland and where I'm from New Brunswick which is north of Maine and also New England the northern New England states um, because they were fishers and merchants actually really didn't want to go to war and there's like an apocryphal story where a community in Maine didn't have enough gunpowder to set off July 4th fireworks and so a New Brunswick community sent them gunpowder in the middle of the War of 1812. It's like, oh yeah, here's some stuff you can blow it up. <laughs> if you don't have enough. <laughs> they were really against it because the Americans got kicked out of the fishery every time uh, they went to war against the British. So I did just lose my battle with ADHD for the last 12 minutes, but I'm going back in. <laughs> so basically the British Empire in the like Atlantic Ocean was basically just like kind of at war with France and both France and England were like stopping ships mm-hmm. and like kind of fucking up commerce mm-hmm. and like America and Canada, like everybody over here was kind of like in the middle of that because they were probably just trying to get their shit, but it was like fucking up trade and mm-hmm. probably messing up like prices and yeah. there was like all sorts of shit oh, happening. Yeah. Are they like sailboat ships? Yeah, because there's no motors, right? The first ship with a an engine is sailing by 1805, I think. How fast, I'm going to ask, I have to, how fast could like a big ass British naval like ship that didn't have a engine, like that just had like sails, like how fast would those go? Was it like slow or could it like pick up some speed if the wind was in the right thing? Um, I think they were pretty fast for what they were. And these were extremely skilled workers. So they knew how to harness the wind at like the right way. But also there's sort of a misconception that you would just sort of point a ship in a direction and sort of go. But if you actually look at the maps where they chart, they like zigzag. So it's, they can move quite fast, but sometimes it actually takes them a really long time to get where they're going because they're dependent on the direction of the wind. Okay, obsessed. So they're kind of <laughs> kidnapping people, being like, okay, you're British now. Like, if they ran into, like, was it easier for them to kidnap, like, an American ship because there was common language, right? Like, because if they kidnapped a French ship and they were all like, bonjour, like, isn't it harder for them to be like, you're English? Yeah, so the labor system at this time is extremely uh liminal. Like, there's a lot of actually foreign workers in the British Navy, things that we would think was really weird today. Like what? Well, the French people worked for the British Navy and the oh. British didn't really care as long as they did the work. But the uh, kidnapping system called impressment is like service that British people owed to the crown. So it's like a legal thing that they're trained in civilian shipping, so fisheries or merchant shipping. And then the British get to call on them as military workers. So they're always sort of moving in and out of military and civilian labor. And so 
what's happening with the Americans is that they're trapped in the middle. There's no way to tell if they're actually American or British. And the British do owe legally service to the crown. The Americans did pass a law to have protection papers. So the sailors would carry a document on their persons that said, like, according to a consul or according to a consular officer in America or sometimes overseas, this man is an American uh, citizen and deserves the rights uh, due him and should not be kidnapped by the British. But would they just light them on fire or would they honor them? Yeah, you just had to pay for them. So the British didn't think very much of them, but they turn up in letters I've seen. I've actually got one of a African-American sailor who had his protection paper signed in Savannah, Georgia, which says that he's a legal citizen and is due his freedom on land and sea, uh, which is uh, really crazy when you think uh, that the institution of slavery existed in Georgia at the time, but here's this free black man who's going to see with protection papers that say he's a citizen of the United States. Do you know what ended up happening to him? He went to prison. Where? There's a prison in Britain that would have held the American prisoners of he war. He got kidnapped and went to fucking Britain in a goddamn prison? Well, he insisted that he was American. If he had agreed that he was British, he would have worked on the British warship. So he either could have chosen to serve on the British ship or he would be a prisoner of war. And then he was just died a prisoner of fucking war? By the end of the war, they would have been sent home. Oh, so he ended up getting to go to America or we don't know? Uh, yeah, I don't know what happened in the end for him. But there was a large prisoner of war riot in 1815. Devon Moore. Shia? <laughs> it's very famous. No. It's a very famous prison um, in the middle of the Moors in like Devon. Yeah, there was a prisoner riot and several Americans died. But I don't think oh. that our American was one of them. So what differentiated a warship and a merchant ship in this era? Because at least in the 1700s, like, was there like warships, merchant ships that were carrying goods and like passenger ships? So there were merchant vessels and you could either hire a cabin or you could actually hire an entire ship to take majority of passengers, but it wouldn't be like a liner. It would literally be that they just wouldn't put they wouldn't fill the ship with cargo. There would be space. So they would make space for passengers, but you would just kind of like live in the ship. Um, there weren't like beds. You would just have hammocks and things like that. Is that like the American girl story when people would immigrate from like Ireland yeah. and like when someone would die of cholera on the ship, they would just be like, they would all be on like haystacks in the basement. And then like, they all be like puking and yeah. barfing and fevers. <laughs> and then they just nice. like throw somebody. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that's how it was for this, like basically all of time up until the first cruise liners yeah so when you start getting steamships with like propellers they start being more reliable so you can start setting timetables and claiming that your ship will arrive within a certain number of days and it starts to be attractive to travel in this way instead of just sort of a, a hardship that you have to deal with eisenberg kingdom Brunel in britain developed like some uh, ships like the SS Great Britain and the Great Western who were marketed as traveling vessels where you would travel to America with cabins and accommodations and entertainment, like an extension of the railway. When was that? Uh, that was like the mid 19th century. 
So basically you're doing that like American girl, like rough ride Mm -hmm. thing to like the 1850s. Yeah. And then you get the Cunard company, which was a Halifax family who start really emphasizing timetables and saying that you can be assured that your ship will leave at a certain time and arrive at a certain time. And that starts really pushing transatlantic travel and this sort of race to build bigger and bigger liners that have more and more luxurious accommodations, which gets us to Titanic. Recently, I've been having some stomach problems. Everyone that I talked to recommended that I take a bunch of different supplements and vitamins, but it's kind of complicated to keep track of that many different pills and powders every day. So I decided to give AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my gut health while also supporting my immune and brain health. AG1 covers my bases with high-quality ingredients like pre- and probiotics, adaptogens, antioxidants, and whole food-sourced nutrients. AG1 also replaces my multivitamin, my pre-slash-probiotic, and my supplements to support energy and focus. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com curious. That's drinkag1.com curious. Check it out. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch and Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. So, like, remember the show Cribs? Like, welcome to my crib. Like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to my crib. (laughs) So if you were like, hi, I'm Dr. Walker and welcome to my 1800s British naval ship. Mm -hmm. Like, can you give us a tour? Yeah, we can talk about like 1800, 1805-ish around there. So so this is like the age of sail. This would be the sort of peak of sailing ships before steam starts to really take off. And especially because the war is so important to Britain, this is a really important nostalgic time for for Britain. So we're really lucky that some of these warships still exist. Um, in Portsmouth in England, the HMS Victory is still on display, and it was the site of Nelson, Horatio Nelson's death in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar. And it's a really great example of what a warship would be like. It's huge. It's got 100-plus guns. So uh, lots of firepower and what life was like on the ship and its geography are extremely interrelated. 
question. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah. I hate myself sometimes for asking them all the time. <laughs> I had you. When you say guns, was there like cannons? Yeah, these are cannons. Yeah. So it's like those like things that you've seen in the movie. So different sizes. Yeah. So they would have portholes. They had ropes and you would push them out the holes and they would fire and then they would recoil and the sailors would have to then move them back into position uh, every time. So it would be like 50, 50 split of guns on each side of the ship. And all the tactical considerations of naval warfare accounted for how fast you could get your broadside guns to face another ship uh, with the maximum amount of surface payoff when you fired all your guns into the other boat. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So like how many floors was there? Was there like the deck like the main deck and then like the cannon floor and then was there like a basement or like did it not work like that yeah there were several floors so there would be a main deck that was flushed to the top where you would walk around outside and often there would be a higher deck the poop deck or the quarter deck and the front is the forecastle or the forecastle and that could be raised as well so there would be a little bit of uh, stairs that you would go up. So sailors wouldn't actually be allowed to like walk, just walk up there casually. It would be like a place where the officers were like raised higher than everybody else could sort of see what everybody was doing um, and would be able to like point at things and tell people what to do. <laughs> yes. Okay. Love that. So what would like daily life look like on a ship like that in 1805? They were very regimented. So they uh, served in watches. So like these would be uh, groups where the same men would serve for a certain number of hours on a rotation so that the ship was never understaffed. Like there was no point where there weren't people awake that were making sure the ship wasn't like running into rocks or just careening and like around the sea. And these men would like work with each other and live in the same parts of the ship together and would uh, become extremely familiar with each other. And if the captain tried to move them into different watches, sometimes the sailors would um, cause problems uh, because they would resist moving into groups with other men that they didn't know or like. Which naturally leads us to, (laughs) was there gay stuff? Yeah. Like, do we ever have stories of like just hot gay love or was it just too poopy, barfy, like couldn't clean out right? Not to be offensive, but you know no. what I'm saying? Like, um, just you couldn't really, or could you? The Navy is a, what we call like a homosocial environment, meaning that there's largely no women. It's almost exclusively men uh, who went to sea uh, in these ships and it was highly regulated. Um, there were female nurses sometimes that went to sea at this time and in port women would get brought on board for entertainment, sometimes as prostitutes, but often like just as sales women who brought liquor on board and things like that. But there is records of men being caught and uh, unfortunately charged with having sex with other men in these ships. And unfortunately, like the thing with queer history at this time is that that's where you find the stories. So often the happiest sort of story you can hope for is that they never get caught. So you never see that they're, <laughs> that they turn up in the historical record. Cause there's never a story of someone getting caught in it, like being okay or them not getting put in jail or something like it was really bad. 
Yeah, it's very rare, but you can sometimes find letters and things that are like recollections of maybe love between two men. Although at this point, I think it's very rare. It gets more common in the later 19th and early 20th century when people have more access to literacy and they're able to produce diaries or leave behind letters. And it's more likely that those letters have been preserved and kept. But the large portion of gay relationships at this time would have been uh, prosecuted and they would have been hung for quote unquote unnatural Ugh. acts. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's bad. So like, well, so fuck. So you're probably not going out to sea because you want to have some open gay sex. Like, so what was making people go out to sea in this time? Like, was there like great benefits like from the British Navy? Like, did your family get a cool house or something? Did it pay good? Like, why did people do that? Um, the pay could be good. The British were always behind in pay. So in arrears, uh, as they say, but you would be guaranteed reliable source of food and you would be clothed by the state, although they would make you pay for it. <laughs> that's part of the reason that they have impressment is that people didn't really like to uh, join the Navy. They would rather work in merchant mm. service because one, they weren't at risk of dying uh, all the time. And two, they, the wages were higher in the merchant service, but there were some mm. benefits. The reason that the system sort of did work is because the sailors would uh, get a lot of specialized training on naval ships. They would be able to work up to a sort of more qualified position. And then when they went back to merchant uh, work, they could get a higher paying job based on mm. the training that they'd had in the Navy. So like potential for upward economic mobility. Yeah. yeah. So, and then also just not having a choice, like just being forced into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, it's Cheyenne Davis. You may know me from MTV's Teen Mom OG or Think Loud Crew podcast. I'm here with my dad, Papa Floyd, to tell you about our new podcast, Unfiltered Kitchen. The kitchen is the hub of the household for many of us. The one-stop shop for conversations both big and small. Cheyenne and I have been having open conversations about all aspects of life in our kitchen since well before she was able to see over the counter. And now we're inviting you into our own kitchen as a part of the family. Unfiltered Kitchen is a two-way street. I share my advice on cocktails, cooking, parenting, and the lessons I've learned. And I inform my dad what it's like to raise kids today, how generational barriers affect us, and the joys of being a daughter. Well, your daughter. Get ready for a whole lot of unfiltered advice. You can take it or leave it, but you're never going to leave this table feeling hungry for more. Listen to Unfiltered Kitchen wherever you get your podcasts. These days, you can't go anywhere on the internet without running into the most horrible takes. You know, your good old-fashioned homophobes, or your self-proclaimed alpha males, who are writing two-page articles titled, How to Score the Perfect Female in 10 Days. If you are just as sick of these outdated takes as we are, you will love our podcast, Outspoken, hosted by me, Sam Collins, and my incredible partner, Shannon. We are an LGBT couple who have seen it all, been called it all, 
and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions. Each week, we bring you the most ridiculous videos, hot takes, and hellbent news we come across on the internet. So come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet on our podcast, Outspoken. You can follow and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you are listening right now. So, okay, let's talk clothes. We are so excited. It only took me 40 minutes to get there. Jesus Christ, help us. Um, So, like, what were the ranks and what were the styles of, like, a naval ship at this time? Yeah, so it is really uh, separated by whether you were an officer or whether you were a sailor. So the officers, if we're still in 1805, are wearing not completely regulated, but state uh, uniforms. So the government says what they want and the officer goes to a tailor and there would be specialist tailors that would serve almost exclusively or predominantly naval officers. So they would be aware or know what the government wanted um, and they would make the uniforms. But they weren't regulated in the sense that um, the state was producing the uniforms themselves. There was a bit of leeway so the officers could ask for more stylish cuts or a new fashionable accoutrement to be added to their uniform. And the state uh, might be a little pissy about it, but they weren't going to like go after them in the same way because these officers were like aristocratic men or upper, like very high upper class or uh, middle class men who were wealthy enough for the government to sort of leave them alone. Mm. At this time, epaulets are really popular, but they're not actually part of the regulations. So, um, the, uh, so Nelson died with a coat that had epaulets, which is the little things on the shoulders. Who's Nelson? Horatio Nelson, the guy uh, from Trafalgar. Of course. Yeah. Was he British? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <fierce>. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so there was like commander outfits and then crew outfits. Was there several different crew outfits or just one crew outfit in 1805? So what's happening with sailor outfits is sort of the opposite. The sailors' uniforms are being mass-produced by the government. So the government isn't making them themselves, but they're buying lots of clothes from contractors and the contractors are making them based on specific demands that the government wants. They want certain kinds of coats, certain kinds of trousers, certain kinds of shirts, and those are being mass produced. So how that's being done, which because of course this is before sewing machines, before even really uh, like the explosion in mechanized weaving, this is called piecework. So what's happening is they're taking the fabric and a pattern to uh, women in their own homes and they're asking them to make the clothes and the women are paid by piece. So every shirt mm. that they make, they get uh, um, an amount for that shirt. So it's mass production, but it's not concentrated in a factory. The women aren't being supervised by managers they're being visited by contractor subcontractors that come around and pick up the goods and take them back to uh, a warehouse where they're put in a bale and then delivered to the government. The government weighs the bale, says it weighs the amount it should weigh. Uh, they might open one and make sure the quality is good. And then they put the bale on a ship and the ship uh, distributes them to sailors who, oh. uh, because they're at sea, have no other option but to buy from the government. 
That's rude that they like made them buy it. It like wasn't in there. It was like it, like give it's like giving Monopoly. So like what like range of fabrics and like fits would we see? Were they like tight? Was it giving crop top? Was it like what it's like what is it what we would imagine as like a sailor outfit today? Or did like you know how we always say like you know things back like in the day were like built to last. Like they were like better constructed. Like were these really well constructed? Like or were they shitty? For the mass-produced clothes, I think there was sort of like an in-between because the fabric still would have been like good. They would have been like 100% natural fibers. So this would be like linens. The coats would have been woolen. So the shirts and trousers probably were made of linen or cotton and the coats would have been made from wool. But how, if you're being paid by the piece, how good the sewing, how careful the sewing was is up for debate but um Mm. it's hard to know too because the sea is very hard on clothes it's obviously full of salt and they're doing a lot of really hard work that involves like get covering themselves in tar doing a lot of strenuous physical labor being in combat tar question mark why tar so the ropes are tarred so there's actually an extant there's actually a surviving suit at the museum of london from like uh the late 17th century uh, a sailor suit uh, and you can see the tar like where he's pulling the rope go like slash across his chest so the they could just stained over time the tar um, yeah oh my god it sounds hot I hate <laughs> it okay so let's talk slop um what is slop like what like what 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 slop what's a slop garment that's what we've been talking about right? So the, the mass-produced clothes, yeah, are called slops. And essentially, it's like they don't fit. Oh, because they only came in one size or something? Less that, then there's just no such thing as standardized sizing. Like, there's no concept of a standard human body or a standard thing that's like small, medium, or large. That sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> Most clothes are produced by tailoring. So you would come in and someone would fit clothes directly to your body and your clothes would be built for you. But obviously that's extremely expensive, extremely labor intensive. Oh. So this would be largely accessed by rich people or, or middle-class people. Um, and the poor people, uh, depending uh, would either access less skilled tailors or they would uh, buy clothes through secondhand. So slops were kind of, uh, they just didn't fit right because you had to guess what sizes people would be and they w- might not necessarily have access to somebody who would modify the garments after the fact to fit your body. So there's um, some of the pictures I have this tailor is trying to sell this man a slop coat and you can see that it it's like hanging off his body in a weird way. So there's a lot of caricatures at this time that are reacting to the first available, what we would call ready-made clothes or like off the rack clothes where you could walk into a store and buy a coat. They're showing it as like completely ridiculous. Like why would people want this? Um, look how stupid this man looks in this coat. But you can see that it uh, doesn't fit him. And the implication of off the rack clothes is that you wouldn't then have the tailor fix the clothes for you. So you would just walk out the door with this coat that doesn't fit. But people at the time thought this was wild. That will never catch on. Uh, and then you look back uh, and that's 
uh, completely revolutionized an industry. Um, that's what's basically happening with ready-made clothes. Like this is how we buy clothes now. Um, and here it is 200 years ago that they're seeing it for the first time and they're like, this is really dumb. <laughs> now the coat is like really big. It is really big. And it's also like a very vibrant green mm-hmm. and the tailor's jacket is red. So like where would this fabric and dye have come from? The British love wool. So these probably both would have been wool coats. The British had a very vibrant woolen industry, which reacted very poorly when cotton was introduced, uh, for example, as a competitor. And the British were always trying to find new markets for woolens. So these would have been wool uh, clothes. But the dye would have been natural some sort of natural plant dye. What they did use for red was either matter or... um, Is that blood? No, it's a type of plant. Oh, cool. And cochineal, which is a crushed up bug from Mexico. Ooh. Yeah. So now once they buy their slop, where would a sailor store and like wash their clothes? Like, or would they just buy like five outfits for like a five month journey or <laughs> like, how did that work? So sailors went to sea with um, sea chests and bags and later in the British merchant service. So in the later 19th century, they develop regulations to say how much space the sailors legally have to be given Um in order to fit their possessions, but they would have bags that they would take to sea with them that would have clothes. But obviously how ships work is these men would just sleep in hammocks in like one space, like one or two decks all together. So their possessions were accessible to other people and uh, people would have their clothes stolen out of their bags and then appear on somebody else later and they would get into fights over it and things like that. But the washing is really interesting because the Navy did put aside specific time for sailors to wash their clothes, which um, I think were washed in seawater, which probably didn't help the longevity of the clothes' lives. But they did wash clothes, and there's images of um, clothing being hung in the rigging. So you'll see like a clothesline with like clothes between the masts. How did they get water to drink? Did they just like bring like big jugs of water? There's a part of the ship called the scuttlebutt. And that's a huge uh, freshwater tank and it would have been guarded. So it would have, the water would have been rationed and they would have had Marines that would have guarded the, the scuttlebutt to make sure that the water wasn't overly accessed by sailors or contaminated by either nefarious or accidental means. So... Were the mass-produced crew clothes more regulated by the government? And when they would go between ports, would they bring on, like, more clothes for them to, like, buy? And how did the power structures work there? Like, did it make the sailors, like, easier to spot and easier to control from the officers? Like, what was the power dynamic of clothes being assigned to certain people? Ships all had a purser which was the a person that looked after the clothes, like basically was like the ship banker or the person that looked after the finances. So he kept track of the pay that sailors were owed. Like he had a little also locked area on the ship that would have the slops inside and he would just like the sailors would come to him and ask for clothes and he would distribute them but there were regulations on how much sailors were allowed to spend on clothes because this is a like period where rich people thought that poor people were stupid and couldn't control themselves. And so they thought the second that they got any money, they would just overspend it on like liquor and, 
and fancy clothes. Uh, so there was a lot of regulations about how much money sailors could actually spend on clothes, which got the Navy into problems occasionally because sometimes sailors would actually have like a legitimate reason they needed more clothes, but they would have hit their maximum allowance of clothes for the month. So I got a lot of letters in my research where naval officers had to appeal to the government to let them clothe their sailors. Because it was like freezing or something. They're like, our sailors are fucking freezing their asses off. Like they need three coats. Yeah, actually, I, I have that exact case, which is a rather funny one because a gentleman who I, of whom I am very fond, Sir Home Popham, was uh, in South Africa and he was convinced to go invade South America, not because he was asked to by the British government, but just sort of on a, not a whim, but there, there's reasons that he went, but was not supposed to invade essentially Rio de la Plata, which is now Montevideo and Argentina. And when he got there, it, it of course went completely wrong. And uh, I got letters where he was writing saying, my sailors are very cold and they need clothes. And the government is just like, what's he even doing there? Like, How dare he ask us for clothes and he's not even supposed to be in... <laughs> He's not even supposed to be in Argentina. <laughs> so then what did he do? He paid to clothe the sailors uh, through his own money, but he did spend like three years going after the government trying to get the money to like be recompensed personally. But uh, the invasion was a failure and he was not treated very well by the government. Did they make it back to England? Oh, yeah. Popham lived for a while longer and continued to uh, annoy the British government with his various schemes and uh, <laughs> issues. We got to do a different episode about him. He sounds He's fun. great. And actually, I can tell you exactly who to talk to because uh, somebody I know is writing a book about him. So then, like, what were the power dynamics of, like, you know, crew members only having, like, these types of uniforms to choose from, mm-hmm. but then the officers had? It's kind of giving me, like, our cult fashion episode it's kind of giving like easier to divide and conquer when people are easily identifiable or like is that a piece of it or not yeah so if you switch to the image uh of the sailor and the banker this one yeah so caricaturists loved sailors at this time and because the reason was that they did look different from other people. You can see he's got trousers on where the banker's wearing breeches and stockings. And um, he's got a short blue coat where the banker is wearing a long, like more old fashioned coat. And a really great detail of this caricature is you can see two things hanging from his belt. Those are watch fops, which means that he's wearing two pocket watches instead of just one. Uh, and pocket watches would have been like having an iPhone or an iPod in like the 2000s. Ah, very cutting edge. Yeah, it w- like and, and then having two iPods and then having two ear sets of earbuds and being like, yes, I have two in my pocket. <laughs> That's like what's so, happening here. I love it. <laughs> Okay, so you've written about how garments didn't have standardized sizing. What was like the range like size ranges for these outfits or was it literally all one size and you just have to use like string to tie the pants or like just like how did that work? Yeah, I think there was a bit of attempt to do a bit of sizing, but 
from how they're getting uniforms for the Marines at this time, for the Royal Marines, um, I know that uh, I do have an account of a board meeting where they discuss sizing. And what they did is they bring in sort of an idealized, like strapping young man, like the kind of person they want to be a Marine. And they put him in the clothes and they're like, ah, the clothes fits. Um, And this is the people we want. So if we make the clothes for the people we want, we will get the people we want to be Marines kind of logic. But obviously that's not how it worked. Sailors were actually very skilled sewers. They made their own clothes at sea. They modified their own clothes. I have a lot of accounts from the Caribbean where clothing didn't make it always to the Caribbean because of various reasons, including that moss would get in the clothes and eat it before it got to the Mm. West Indies. Um, So there's a lot of letters saying that there's not enough clothes in storage uh, in the West Indies. Uh, And the sailors taking trousers, I think, and remaking the trousers into coats. Mm. So yeah. And some of the men who were pressed into the Navy were actually originally tailors as well. So uh, there were different trades. There were men who were in the Navy that had originally been like tradesmen in the garment industry that would have been able, like I've seen stay makers. So people who made um, what would have predated corsetry and, uh, and tailors being pressed into the Naval service. You were telling us earlier about, when I asked about gay stuff and then you were like homosocial environment, mm-hmm. love homosocial, great word. Um, so when we think about homosocial environment, that makes me think about like the like range of masculinity and like gender ideals that would have been present because homosexuality is so criminalized at this time. Mm-hmm. But obviously gay people exist through history. So like that's happening simultaneously in there. So what does maritime fashion in this era have to do with gender? Oh, um, a lot. <laughs> There's a, a lot of transition at this period from sort of older ideas into like a new sort of military masculinity, uh, especially identifying with the sort of meritocracy of the Navy in Britain specifically. So, for example, sailors wore trousers. So it was like a working class dress. But as this 25-year conflict goes on, what the state owes to sailors becomes more clear because they're protecting Britain and blockading Europe and fighting uh, in so many parts of the world. Naval officers start to uh, adopt trousers as a symbol of their like military masculinity or their like meritus mm. uh, masculinity. So identifying as like the fighting working man. So pants are more butch over the like tights yeah. and like the earlier one is giving like kind of like that golfer style where it's like, or like almost like a baseball player, like, like the tights on the bottom and like the baggy on top, like just mm-hmm. so you have a mental. Um, so pants <laughs> become seen as more butch. Yeah. And the other thing with that is this is a change in like, where the site of male sexuality it is focused. So prior to this period the, and the adoption of trousers, 
a man's like best physical trait were his calves. The reason that the calves are exposed with breeches is that like that was considered the most sort of sexy aspect of a man's body. It was like very important that you have good calves. So therefore they were made visible and people uh, grumbled uh, if they, you know, had like less good calves and stuff like that. Uh, So when the (laughs) three piece suit is actually brought in it, uh, when it's like first adopted as sort of uh, menswear in the late 17th century, um, having uh, usurped the place of like the doublet and hose, it's adopted from clothes that would be lower uh, cut. So the waistcoat and coat would have been more skirt-like uh, from the cultures that they adopted the three-piece suit from. So like Turkish Janissary uniforms or Indian male robes that would hang to the floor. But Europeans or the British refused to cover their calves. So that's why the the coat on the banker is like cut right at his knees because uh, it shows the calves being exposed. And it's such an important part of male sexual identity. So for men to then adopt trousers and to hide calves was a movement uh, away from showing calves in public. So then what became more the sexual part of men, like their duckas? <laughs> or like, no. Um, uh, there's Or just not calves, not really like another part. Just was like the calves are like clothes for business, honey. It's like well, that was so yesteryear. In this period, if you look at portraits and you watch period dramas and stuff, uh, the way that the coats are cut, uh, like the waistcoats and at the navel and the coats are cut to be open. And a lot of men are wearing trousers in the countryside. It just shows like their whole front just sort of revealed. Um, and trousers uh, and breeches could get very tight at this period. So actually the site of attraction is like, it's transferring to their junk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It was their duck guy. I love yeah. That. Okay. But then as the uh, Victorian period began, uh, the skirts on men's jackets lower and their sh- uh, coats snap shut as sort of like a closing of the curtain and the male body is like completely covered up. Boo. But the waist becomes the focus at that point. And there's a lot of anxiety also about boo. men wearing corsetry um, because there's a lot of emphasis on men having very broad shoulders and a giant chest. And in order to emphasize that, they have any actually a very hourglass wasp figure in the 30s and 40s. But like women's fashion, men's fashion really varies considerably over the Victorian period. There's a lot of changes in silhouettes, a lot of changes in coat styles, a lot of hats and facial hair appearing and disappearing. And a lot of people don't give men very much credit uh, for fashion ability, they just see them wearing three-piece suits that are black and are like, oh, that's the only story here. <laughs> but there is more to the story. Yeah, so that's kind yeah, of fun. yeah. And military uniforms actually is one of one site of extreme male fashionability and not just fashionability, but like color and embroidery and uh, embellishment. So as the 19th century goes on, the British aren't that often at war, uh, although they are uh, quite a bit, but the uniforms get more uh, elaborate and more 
extreme and just like dripping in embroidery and big red coats and Oh my God, I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that. Okay, so like, how is like managing slop inventories considered an effeminate task? Or was it considered an effeminate task? The purser specifically was sort of an extremely contested figure on a ship. He uh, was often thought to be scamming everybody all the time. And because they actually put their own money up, to finance the ship, they often were scamming uh, everybody all the time because it was really risky to not do it. Essentially, if um, you invested your own money into a warship, into like the food and clothes and things, uh, and then the warship sank, you lost your entire investment. So uh, there was a lot of incentive for pursers to continue to charge uh, dead men on board for things for example. Ah. And, and then there was something called the purser's pound, which meant that the purser got a cut of everything he sold on board. And the sailors knew all this and they weren't, they didn't like it very much. But the actual interesting thing is that the officers were very matter of fact with regulating clothes. They understood that this was part of their job. They didn't necessarily like it. I had um, <laughs> an Admiral, uh, Keith, who uh, had to buy 20,000 shoes in Sicily. Uh, so I got to go on a big shoe shopping spree uh, and didn't much care for it. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and wrote a lot of uh, about how annoyed he was that he had to do this instead of like more important things, which was chasing Napoleon to Egypt. Ah, that's cool. But actually, it's really interesting that sometimes historians now like feminize officers who had to regulate clothes as part of their job in hindsight. So clothing isn't uh, in naval history. Uh, it's starting to get better. There's a lot more discussions of gender and things like that in uh, historical writing now. But um, you can read a whole text on healthcare, for example, and read two paragraphs on clothes as if they had nothing to do with health management on a ship and then have the historian be very dismissive about the utility of clothing and how much the officers should be thinking about clothes, even mm-hmm. though they had compliments of 500 men that they had to make sure they didn't freeze to death or get sick. And we know from Forrest Gump that socks are so fucking important. Lieutenant Dan taught yeah. us that you have to keep your fucking socks dry. Yeah. And that does really affect health and stuff. Yeah. So some of the power is actually not just with the officers. There's not even amounts of power, but sailors could make their discontent known. So the officers actually had a lot of incentive to uh, to make sure the sailors were happy with their clothes and their food and other creature comforts as much as that would be at the time, because there was always the, the danger that sailors would mutiny. And there had been in 1797, two huge mutinies in the British Navy that um, sort of rocked the foundations of, of of the naval administration and the British government. I wanted to ask that. Is that where, like, the sailors would, like, just kill the officers, like, assassinate officers, and then just steal the sheep and, like, abscond to America or something? <laughs> it did happen, but in these two cases, especially the first case, uh, it was more petitions. So the sailors kicked the officers off the ships, and then they wrote very formal uh, petitions to the government that were essentially statements about what 
they wanted changed. So they wanted better wages. They wanted their back pay. They wanted to visit port more often and like go to like visit land. They wanted better food. They wanted uh, better clothes and they wanted their officers to not be pricks. <laughs> Which is so a then big what happened? For, well, this one was uh, in uh, outside of Portsmouth uh, at a mooring called Spithead, and it was uh, fleet wide and sort of so. Uh, I don't know if well organized would be the term, but it was uh, very influential, and the British Navy capitulated. They actually gave them what they asked for, and they didn't arrest anybody or try anyone for mutiny or anything. The, essentially, it went really well for the sailors. But within uh, a few days before that one ended, there was another mutiny at the entrance uh, of the Thames, so the entrance to London, where um, where it was a lot more militant. So they did threaten to take their ships to France and defect to the French government. Again, they didn't kill their officers. They just kicked them off the boats. And was that one successful too? That one was not successful because it was more radical. The British were way less thrilled with that one. I mean, they weren't thrilled with the other one either, but they couldn't tolerate it. So they eventually, uh, when it finally broke, when the mutiny finally broke after about a month, several court martials and a good number of men were hung and some were transported Mm. to Australia. Mm. So how did, like, how did slop clothes and the mass production of slop clothes and just all of naval fashion influence fashion outside of the Navy and just in Britain and the United States and like all of it, how did it influence it? So obviously we all wear pants today. (laughs) Uh, So sailors uh, would have introduced trousers into more common Uh, clothing trends. So one of my arguments is that the slop clothes system, which really thrived during the 18th century because it was a contractual system that got government contracts and got to supply all these clothes to the government. After 1815, when the war ended, they kind of had to find a new market to sell their clothes. So what they did was, because sailors were already conditioned to know what slop clothes were and to purchase slop clothes, um, it was a lot easier to pursue maritime markets um, for slops uh, during and after the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, And that after a while, this trickled into working men uh, generally. So at first, longshoremen and dockyard workers also purchasing ready-made clothes, and then broadly working people, um, working men especially, buying clothes off the rack. Um, And women's off-the-rack fashion is a lot later in the 19th century. Wouldn't women's clothes at that time just been more intricate to mass produce? Because you have like a corset. There's like 80 different pieces, like the top, you got the bottom, you got a fucking hat. Like there's just like more shit to make. Part of this too is that uh, because women's clothing is more visible and fit would be more uh, like a more of a consideration. It would be better if it was tailored, especially high quality dresses. Part of the reason why it's so important that it's working people that adopt off the rack ready-made clothes first is that they're not being scrutinized uh, with that sort of lens. And that's why it takes a really long time for, for high fashion to to eventually become off the rack or to have an off the rack component. Um, so for extremely rich people to wear clothes off the rack takes a lot longer because they're richer and they're able to afford the services of high class tailors. But how interesting that 
slot clothes in like this maritime fashion this time ended up becoming like the blueprint to kind mm. of like what is fast fashion now. Yeah. And like, that was like people being like, oh, I kind of like that look that that guy's wearing like in the ship. And then it comes to the dockyard and then people mm. in the city are like, this dockyard bloke, honey, he's wearing these pants. I want to, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. that's just fascinating that that ended up becoming the blueprint yeah. to how like our fashion industry kind of now. Yeah. So that's fascinating. So as we wrap up, I have to know more about how you became a literal historian of like maritime fashion. It's so interesting. So like what sucked you up in this subject and how do you research for your work? So I um, wanted to get away from mainland Canada. So I went to Newfoundland for my undergrad. So I've actually, I'm here now, but I've, I'm like a boomerang. I went away and came back. So <laughs> So I came to Memorial University as an undergraduate and Munn has a really great world-class collection of working uh, men's records from the British Merchant Service, which is held at the Maritime History Archives here just on the other side of the wall where I'm sitting. And it's a huge repository of working men's papers. And as a young history student, I got to work within projects. Uh, and I wrote my master's on using those specifically because when sailors die at sea, the officers were regulated by the government uh, to produce an inventory of their effects. So in those documents, when a sailor died, it would include a list of all their clothes that they owned when they died. Uh, so wow. I wrote a, so I wrote a master's project based on the clothes of uh, seafarers who died uh, in the late 19th century. How would you have to handle those documents? Like, did you have to handle them with like gloves and like in certain climates or something? Are they like falling apart? Are they in pretty good shape? That was 10 years ago. So they were the older documents. So I worked with documents from the 1860s to the 1880s. The older documents are a little bit more of a rougher shape but it's actually because of the format, they would be these huge sheets. And in order to get them into the boxes at the time, the government would fold them, but they've been folded for over 100 years or 150 years. So the folds are breaking up and the documents are coming apart. But otherwise, no, uh, we don't use gloves. Our archive is climate controlled. Um, but yeah, I would just sit in the reading room and uh, read them. The reason that you don't use gloves is because you can't feel the documents. So if you're going to rip something, it's a lot harder to tell or you're like doing something wrong. It's a lot harder to tell because you can't feel the paper. So it's actually safer to touch documents without gloves than with the damage from transferring oils is a lot less uh, significant than uh Ripping the... Ripping it. <laughs> ripping. How interesting. Yeah. So we learned in our episode with Shui Guo that like history is often written by the winners. And we learned, and you you know mentioned that earlier, and we said, you know, no news is largely good news. I'm curious about what some of your favorite archival finds have been, like maybe like one of your favorite stories. Um, yeah, what was your favorite stuff that you found? One of my favorite documents is I have a 200-year-old poster that got ripped off the wall in Portsmouth. So, and this is a good reversing 
the power dynamic. When the captains came into port, the desertion risk for their sailors was so high that you couldn't just let your sailors go to like the tavern and have a good time. Instead, you would have people sail boats to your ship and they would bring liquor and entertainment to the ships. And the captain would sort of regulate this. And this specific captain, John Towers, tried to overregulate the slop sellers that were coming aboard tried to tell them what they could sell to the sailors and and that he was going to act as a middleman between the sailors and the slop sellers. He was going to be the one to manage his sailors' money. Um, and he put up a poster in Portsmouth to say that this is what he expected. Uh, so the slop sellers took one good read of that uh, and they went and printed their own poster that essentially is like uh, a doge meme that makes fun of the captain. And and I say that because there's some jokes that I get, but there's clearly some historical jokes that, that they're making fun of this man. But like, because I'm not a 200 year old person from Portsmouth, England, I can't tell you what the joke is. <laughs> oh my God, how cool. <laughs> but, but one of the jokes I do know is that uh, the captain's ship was called the Curacao, which is an island off the coast of uh, South America. Uh, and they instead called the ship the so-and-so. So it's like a, like a symbolant pun on the name. John Tower ships so-and-so, like, who does this asshole think he is? (laughs) Yes, fucker. So Towers went into Portsmouth, saw one of these posters, uh, and ripped it off the wall and put it in a letter and sent it to the Admiralty. And he said, guys, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about these assholes in Portsmouth? And the Admiralty turned it over and wrote back, uh, this is a land issue and we don't have authority on land, so we're not going to do anything. (laughs) Ah. Uh, Which, of course, the soft sellers knew uh, and John Towers, I think, was in a little bit of denial over. But yeah, essentially, he got told that they couldn't do anything because that wasn't their jurisdiction. But the actual letter or the actual poster is still in the National Archives in Britain. It's still stiff with the paste that they would have pasted it on the wall. And when he ripped it off the wall... I assume it was him, but I maybe maybe it was a lackey. Uh, you can see the other posters that got ripped off the wall with it. So like uh, tenancy advertisements and like contract appeals and things like that. As a document, it's really great, but as like a tactile thing that you can hold, like the stiff poster that literally was on a wall that people walked by 200 years ago. It's like just one of those really exciting things that you see in the archives. Yeah, such a connection, like, to people before us. It's so interesting. So earlier this year, we interviewed Sarah C. Bird, who encouraged us to see everyday styles as part of fashion history. So what's the importance of studying slot clothes and workwear? And what can we learn about the people who made and wore these garments? I really like studying uh, men's clothing specifically because it's sort of outside of the typical interests of most clothing scholars. Not to say that they're dismissive of it. I mean, it it is really exciting to study beautiful dresses and and women uh, did think a lot more about their clothes and wrote about their clothes. But men's clothing gets us really interesting access to these sort of questions of masculinity and power and male fashionability and male bodies. And I think the really sort of subversive thing about that is that men hate talking about their bodies, especially straight men, uh, and hate thinking that they have fashion and hate acknowledging that they wear clothes. 
And it's really interesting to, uh, to study something where it's very clear that they think extremely hard about these issues and are very passionate about them, even as they sort of dismiss them and pretend like they don't care. You were mentioning earlier that as the 19th century wore on, the naval officers got like more and more elaborate in their outfits. Can you take us back there for a moment and like, like just embroidery for days, like it just got more fabulous? Like what happened? Yeah, that would have largely been officers. So the naval officers, for example, would have um, had a bit of a touchstone in the age of sail. So they're, as their uniforms get more uh, modernized, they still keep aspects of the old uniforms, especially around the cuffs and the pockets, the pocket flaps are still this shape of the old 18th century pockets. But the uh, infantry especially, and the cavalry especially, especially in the British army really lean into uh imperial prestige by the late 19th century. And it's all about having big red coats or very brightly colored coats with like gold uh, embroidery and uh, a lot uh, of accoutrements and a big sword and, you know, a pretty horse and the whole bit. And there's a lot of anxiety about men who join these regiments, whether they're joining them because they actually want to be military men or whether they're joining them because they just want to dress in like exciting clothes and have a good excuse to do it. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Love it. So now we have uh, last two questions. Mm -hmm. And so this one, um, I want us to kind of end where we began, which is with the Titanic. So as we celebrate its 25th anniversary, why do you think this voyage continues to have such a tight grip on pop culture? Um, It's, the hubris. (laughs) A lot of ships sink. A lot of ships sink more tragically than the Titanic, more fast, more terribly. But the idea that a ship would leave on its maiden voyage and then immediately sink, not having even reached its first destination, chock full of like extremely rich people is just metaphors for days. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Is there any like stories from the Titanic that we haven't really heard about that there is research on that's like quite interesting that maybe wasn't in the movie or or has everything been kind of explored to death? Um, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. But like if you were talking to somebody on the street who'd like just seen Titanic and was like interested in more Titanic stories, two main places that like almost never get a lot of discussion are um, second class passengers and the second class parts of the ship and also the staff. And because I work with crew agreements, which are specifically about the staff, like the crew of the ship, I am uh, very interested in the staff makeup of the Titanic, which was huge. I think five to 800 people worked uh, on the ship. What was the survival rate of the staffers? I think it was about 50 or below 50%. It was really rough on the staff. The majority of the female staff survived, but the uh, casualty rates, for example, in the engineering department were very high. Some stokers did survive, but the actual officers stayed to the very last minute and made sure that, you know, right before the ship breaks in half and the lights flicker and go out, they had to maintain the power to keep the lights on. 
part of keeping the power going was keeping the bilge pumps running. So they are actually equalizing the water intake of the ship so that, because what largely happens when a ship is struck on the side, like the Titanic was, is that they capsize. And if a ship rolls over on its side, it's incredibly more difficult to uh, evacuate than it is if it's upright. So what they were doing was they were trying to equalize the water so that the ship didn't roll on its side. And it's actually very strange that the ship didn't roll because a lot of ships usually capsize. So it's kind of heroic-ish of the, of yeah, the it's heroic that they were able to keep it upright. There's monuments in Southampton and in uh, Edinburgh where a lot of men went to school for engineering, where they're celebrated as heroes uh, of the Titanic sinking. Were any officers or like staffers like pulled out of the water and like lived to tell about it or no? The highest ranking officer that lived on the Titanic was Lightoller, and he uh, testified at the at the inquiry in New York uh, and would have talked quite extensively about the sinking. He famously denied that the ship broke in half, um, mm. but like probably because he didn't actually see it. <laughs> he would have been on the collapsible at the end. Uh, so one of the last. Oh, yeah. Did the sinking of the Titanic cause them to make like industry changes for like make them have more lifeboats or like make there be more lights on the ships or anything like did that cause did that oh, spark yeah. industry change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, how how safety functions on ships today uh, is directly stems from the Titanic. So lifeboats obviously was the first big thing. They made sure that every ship had to carry enough lifeboats for uh, the entire ship for the crew and the passengers. But one of the big problems with Titanic that doesn't get really discussed a lot is just crew training, crew training for emergencies. Like there's a lot of stock put into the fact that Titanic skipped their boat drill, but the staff itself was never trained to evacuate a ship of that size. They all would have been signed on to the crew agreement contract and put on the vessel between hours and days before the ship sailed. So they would have been as unfamiliar with that ship as the passengers. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that changed after the ship was that there had to be drills. Now staff are assigned to boats. Passengers meet the staff that will be helping them get into boats in the case of an emergency, which was uh, not the case on the Titanic. Lightoller and Murdoch, the other chief officer, were loading lifeboats on each side of the vessel in completely different ways than each other. So one was more lenient, uh, letting men get in the lifeboats, uh, and the other was putting them off empty because he was running out of women and children to enter the boats, but he wasn't letting men get in the boats. So like there were, uh, so there's reasons for the, even the lifeboats filling up at different rates because the two men never spoke to each other and had no, had just been told women and children first. And that was their only direction on how to load the boats. Jesus. Megan, I have had so much fun. I learned so much. I can't even stand it. So what's next for you and your work? What are you doing? What's up next? Um, well, I'm working on a project here. 
I laugh a lot because I'm always, because I started with merchant shipping and I moved into the Navy, but now I'm looking at a fishing community in Newfoundland. Uh, so I'm doing more seafarers, but a different industry. Um, but these men in a community called Bonavista, they would have had a merchant, a fishing merchant who would buy all their fish. And he had a store where they then would come in and buy goods like food and things. But one thing they were also buying was cloth and notions for sewing and ready-made clothes, predominantly men's ready-made clothes. So I'm looking, I'm using the records from this community to look at how ready-made clothing is entering outport markets in Newfoundland uh, in the late 19th century. Megan Walker, historian extraordinary. You taught us so much today. I cannot even stand it. I love your brain. I love your work. (laughs) I'm so grateful for you. I can't even, like, I just, I really didn't have so much fun. Is there anything that you would just be remiss that you didn't tell us or are you feeling complete? Tell us everything. I think we're good. I mean... I'm feeling so good. I feel like we got to have you back in a little while to like do another touch base, honey. I just had so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious and go Megan Walker. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJBN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me and Erica Ghetto with production support from Julie Carrillo, Chris McClure, and Aaron McKeon. 